0: I'll tell you what I did this morning. My partner and I drove up to North York because we had heard... From a friend of hers, that there was a pop-up clinic there, a miracle clinic that was giving away vaccines regardless of postal code.
1: I knew as soon as you said we drove up to North York, I knew exactly where the story was going. So why else
0: would we be in North York? Yeah, <laughs> it's a terrible <laughs> place.
1: <laughs> so you you hit the Oregon Trail, and where did it take you?
0: Well, we heard it from a friend of hers who had been there yesterday. For listeners who are listening further abroad, in Toronto, you can get vaccinated if you're, of course, a Above a certain age, and also if you live in certain hotspot areas. So you've got to have the right postal code. We are unfortunately not in a hotspot area. If only we could just get a few neighbors to get the disease, then maybe we (laughs) could have a chance of getting vaccinated. But anyway, apparently they were giving this out willy nilly yesterday at this place in North York, not asking for ID. And this friend of ours didn't quite get it in time. They ran out, but they said, well, you can come back tomorrow. And I kind of went with the attitude of like, well, I don't I don't actually believe I'm going to get vaccinated ever until I see the needle in my arm. So we went there. We stood in line in the morning for about an hour. And then somebody came out and said, well, actually, everyone's been misinformed. There's a spurious rumor going around on the Internet that we're giving vaccinations to everyone. But it's just the problem. Postal codes. And the funny thing is, I don't actually feel all that heartbroken about it.
1: You didn't expect to get one, did you? No,
0: I didn't expect to get one. It seems too good to be true. I also thought that I was cheating in some way anyway. Look, times are desperate. I'll step over anyone to get this vaccine now. <laughs> I don't care what damage I cause. But also, if I don't get the vaccine at the Miracle Pop-Up Clinic, I think, well, you know, it serves me right for jumping in front of the
1: line anyway. Well, I have to say, I, I was very heartened by a uh, Navarra Media broadcast that I watched last weekend on their show, Tisky Sour, where uh, Michael Walker and Aaron Bastani uh, were talking about the impact of the vaccine so far in Britain, which is de- decently ahead of Canada and uh, and certainly ahead of the United States as well in terms of vaccinations. But what they've seen so far anyway, is that, uh, you know, the case numbers keep dropping, hospitalizations seem to be dropping, there already seems to be a decent amount of kind of immunity, or if that's the right word, in any case, even just the, you know, 50% of first jabs or just over that, whatever they have is stopping the spread of the virus. And this as well, like non-essential retail has opened back up. I think schools are open. So the signs out of Britain in terms of what even, you know, lots of people having one jab can achieve are pretty good. So I'm optimistic anyway, that we'll get to, uh, we'll get to something like that in a few weeks or a few months uh, here as well, where of course things are still very rest-
0: but you know there were upbeat things to happen to me in my week there were happy things I a couple days ago and I'm gonna to build to a broader point here or at least half of a point or a semi-developed point you know we, we riff here we're like jazz
1: well we are riffing but I love the way that you teed that up by uh, reverting to your radio voice you're like well it's not all bad
0: <laughs> this is this is why I went to the Columbia Journalism School is to learn techniques like that <clears throat> so a few nights ago I watched I revisited one of my favorite movies of the Trump era. And I'm not being ironic when I say that. No sarcasm. I feel the need to specify that because I feel like most times when I say I like something on this podcast, I I immediately (laughs) puncture it with some piece of shit.
1: We get a lot of letters. People may not realize, in fact, the vast majority of listener correspondence is people saying, was Will being ironic about that (laughs) or not?
0: But I watched for the second time Richard Jewell by Clint Eastwood, uh, which is a movie that I like very much. Liked it even more this time. And while watching it, I definitely felt the difference of watching it in the Biden era as opposed to the Trump era. Because this movie came out at the end of 2019, and uh, it was not a great box office success. And it felt like all of the discourse surrounding it had to do with, is this a veiled mega movie? And then there was a smaller discourse that was like, ah, but could this actually be kind of like a secret leftist movie? Because, you know, it's the story, for those who don't know, of this security guard, Richard Jewell, who found a bomb that a terrorist had planted at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, and then, you know, was pointed at by the FBI as being a potential suspect because he hit all the boxes, you know, a loner, somebody with a checkered history who might want to do this to seem like a hero— And this movie, the villains of it are uh, the media and the FBI, which in the context of the Trump
1: era. Two unequivocal forces (laughs) for good, as we all know.
0: Yes. And the hero of the film is this aggrieved lower middle class or working class white male and the director of course is the man who famously yelled at a chair at the Republican National Convention. So there was there was a lot of discourse about is this a veiled Trump movie? Oh, uh, actually one more thing I should say in fairness to the film's critics is that the media is represented by a character played by Olivia Wilde based on an actual journalist. a a journalist at the Atlanta newspaper who sort of led the charge against Richard Jewell. And the film, in a pretty appalling lapse of taste, to be honest, fabricates a scene where Olivia Wilde, as the journalist, basically sleeps with the FBI guy, played by John Hamm, to get the information. Uh, which a lot of people, I think, rightly interpreted as a pretty sexist scene.
1: Well well also if you're if you're doing a dramatic account of a real event, particularly not that long after it happened in the grand scheme of things, you probably shouldn't make stuff up for kind of dramatic purposes, right?
0: Yeah, I agree. What I will say though is that the movie earlier on has a scene where John Hamm as the FBI guy and Olivia Wilde as the journalist are at like the opening ceremonies and they're watching this concert where everybody there, all the people do the Macarena. And they look at these people with such contempt. They're like laughing at these ordinary people. And I thought, you know, I've been a journalist at a small town newspaper. I've been a big city boy at a small town newspaper. That contempt that they feel, that shameful contempt rings very true. I, I, I know what that contempt feels like, and it's bad. And this is one of the rare movies that defines that contempt and puts it out there for us to understand. And that's important.
1: <laughs> You're telling me that uh, in your capacity as a small town beat reporter, you didn't cover Junior C hockey and the Wellesley Apple Butter Festival with, uh, with respect?
0: You know, there were a lot of times in retrospect when I didn't want to be there. And I mean, I was a callow youth. What can I say? In retrospect, I look back at all that with great fondness.
1: In your defense, uh, I will just say it was also a job and like, you know, work sucks. Doing work sucks. Most of us would rather be doing something else most of the time. That's true.
0: So two big takeaways from my viewing of Richard Jewell this time. First of all, I think there are very few filmmakers working right now who have a better sense for just American normalcy than Clint Eastwood does. In his recent films, they're very not pretty. It's shitty offices, it's shitty apartments, shitty chain restaurants, and shitty-looking people. And you don't see that a lot. You know, he is, he is a sort of poet of the flyover states, which is remarkable for somebody that rich and that well-established. I mean, you, you watch his recent movies, and he really kind of gets it in a way that most Hollywood filmmakers don't.
1: I mean, the, f- the fact that he still makes real movies at all, whether you like them or not, is astonishing. Not just at his age, but like the fact that he is still producing cinema that is original given how long he's been in the business and as you said given how well established and just rich he is like those things traditionally kill creativity
0: well he's got a movie coming out later this year and he's 90 years old he will turn he will turn 91 this year and he stars in it and I think this is unprecedented. I really don't think we've ever had a 91-year-old A-lister that a movie studio is putting out. I remember seeing The Mule a couple years ago when he was a relatively youthful 88. <laughs> and seeing that movie in a theater and just kind of looking around and thinking, isn't this amazing that we're all here looking at a movie with an 88-year-old man? How often do you see that? Like, never.
1: Let's watch Unforgiven together when lockdown is, uh, is over.
0: One of the best movies ever. But, but the last point I'll make is, It felt great watching this movie not in the Trump era, which is not to, like, discount doing a political reading of the film. I think you can definitely say that the movie is quasi-libertarian. There's plenty in it that I would certainly agree with. I I feel more on its wavelength than a lot of supposedly liberal Hollywood films. But it felt so great to watch it in a context where the point is not whether it fits this particular rubric of it has this, therefore it is mega.
1: So what you're saying is that uh, now that we live in an anti-political era again, uh, <laughs> you were able to enjoy this thing sort of removed from the discourse.
0: The thing is, the movie is still very political, but the discourse makes everything partisan. It makes everything
1: one or the other. Right. You don't feel pressured to situate it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that and that felt good. Um, That doesn't mean that you should turn your brain off and regard it as apolitical, but it just felt nice.
1: Well, this is actually uh, a good segue. Thank you, President Biden. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is actually a good segue into what I wanted to talk about, which is the the main thing that I've been working on this week, which is after... I don't know, I feel like maybe uh, dragging my feet, running away from the task a little bit. Uh, I finally sat down since Biden's 100 day anniversary passed last week, and I decided to try to write something, you know, somewhat definitive on the 100 days and kind of what they mean.
0: Would you say he's the best president of your lifetime so far?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, this is kind of the- What's the competition? This is kind of the difficulty because I found myself at odds, perhaps unsurprisingly, with a lot of the kind of, you know, mainstream centrist, liberal discourse around, you know, the early Biden presidency, but frankly, also with some of the kind of, I don't know, non-socialist, but like left progressive oriented media and commentary. And I will say, I do think the moment that, you know, we're living in right now is very difficult to parse. There's a quite varied constellation of forces and circumstances uh, that have conspired to produce these very strange and in some ways unexpected early months of the Biden presidency. And in the piece, uh, you know, I try to be as kind of sensitive to that uh, as possible. It should be out uh, probably by the time this episode is is out. So I hope people will read it. But I have to say in the act of writing it and, and, and researching it, I did radicalize on my own view a little bit because I ended up reading through quite a lot of the commentary on the Biden presidency and particularly the stuff that's revolved around his domestic agenda and things like the American Rescue Plan, the $1.9 trillion uh, stimulus program. And a few things really struck me going through the commentary. The first is that it's, you know, it's quite uniform. Even people that disapprove of Biden or are kind of ideologically at odds with Biden, you know, there's basically a media consensus at this point that Biden is, he's a radical figure or he's a a figure who's aspiring to pass a really transformative uh, agenda. Um, I want to read just a few of the headlines to give people a flavor Um, Although I I suspect uh, most who are listening will know what I'm talking about. So I identified one genre that posed this in the form of a question. Is Biden really the second coming of FDR and LBJ? Will Joe Biden take his place alongside FDR and LBJ? Can Biden achieve an FDR-style presidency? A historian sees surprising parallels. There are others that just state it uh, much more straightforwardly. Four ways of looking at the radicalism of Joe Biden. That was in the New York Times. Uh, Joe Biden is a transformational president. That one is from David Brooks, interestingly. There's one people may have come across that says Joe Biden is a uh, actually an amalgam of uh lbj fdr the best of barack obama and the best ideas of bernie sanders so he praise doesn't get any more uh, superlative than that uh paul krugman asks uh what is the secret of joe biden's success you know his success being taken as a given at this point i suppose so that struck me uh, i mean just the the extent of the consensus around this
0: among left commentators there's this general thing that you hear a lot there have been a lot of victories these last 100 days maybe be happy about them and pat yourself on the back for them because you worked for this
1: yeah and i mean i i think that's true and um you know actually that's something that i uh, i wish i'd had more time to develop in the piece because i absolutely think that's uh, that's right and You know, Joe Biden has not used executive authority, in my opinion, to the extent that it could be used. Um, But that's not to say he hasn't passed some executive orders that he would not have passed without, you know, I don't know, two Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns, you know, the existence of a bunch of socialist lawmakers uh, who didn't exist a few years ago, the activity of groups like the Sunrise Movement, pressure from the labor movement, etc. Nonetheless, there are other forces that are at work here. And I think when you look at something like the American Rescue Plan, which is the thing most commonly cited as, you know, here's the evidence that Biden is, he's already a transformational president, or at least wants to be. And I think there are a few issues with this. I think on the face of it, people look at, you know, a conservative Democrat like Biden, you know, one of his first things is passing this, you know, $1.9 trillion rescue package. You know, a lot of people look at this, and they see it as a, as a kind of break from deficit hawkishness and kind of austerity economics of, of the kind that have really defined Biden's career. And there's definitely something to that. But it's important to recognize that, you know, the consensus on these things has really shifted among, you know, the kinds of interests who are typically or have typically been opposed to uh, public spending on this scale. And the reason we know this is because the stimulus plan passed by Donald Trump or passed during the Trump era, the CARES Act, was actually slightly larger than the American Rescue Plan. It was $2.2 trillion dollars. The American Rescue Plan, I spoke to this anti-poverty expert a couple of months ago, Stephen Pimper, and you know he was talking about the astonishing rate at which child poverty is going to be cut because of the American Rescue Plan. Um, some experts think it'll be cut in half by as early as this summer because of all the various payments and transfers included in it. There are a couple of things that need to be said about this. One, it is unabashedly good, and I'm not criticizing it. Two, the anti-poverty impact is going to be roughly the same, although there are some differences but in broad strokes, roughly equivalent to the anti-poverty impact of uh, the CARES Act as passed at the tail end of the Trump era. And the other thing is a lot of these benefits that are contained within the uh, American Rescue Plan, they're temporary. So these are not permanent changes to the social safety net. These are not permanent updates. When I was looking at the American Families Plan, which is the yet-to-be-passed next phase of Biden's spending plans, um, that does contain a provision to uh, extend things like the child tax credit to 2025, which would be great, but it's still not permanent. It's also important to note that the American Rescue Plan had widespread buy-in from CEOs at places like Goldman Sachs, Google, Lyft, Visa. There's a letter with 170 business leaders that was released where they came out in support of the package. Again, there's a lot in the package that's good, but there are some incredibly varied forces coming together or inserting themselves in various ways during this historic crisis to produce stuff like the American Rescue Plan, and I think that's very important to recognize. I'm not going to continue in a granular way because I kind of do that in the piece and, and people can just read it when it's out. But I will just say that my big takeaway from sitting down and really thinking about Biden's first 100 days and what they mean is that in order to be a transformative president, in order for a president to preside over a transformative or kind of radical era, in terms of what becomes law at least, I think there are really two basic components. One is laws and programs that together form a kind of consensus that Uh, in some way becomes bipartisan and and lasts. Things which either bind subsequent administrations because they're so popular or because they're so embedded, they're hard to undo, uh, or things which are openly embraced by subsequent administrations. Lots of things Bill Clinton did, for example, came out of the Reagan revolution, but they weren't things that anybody forced him to do. They were things he did with tremendous zeal. So I think that's criterion number one. I think criterion number two is you have to see a kind of corresponding ideological shift. There are changes in the political imaginary that both precede the big sort of institutional and policy changes and therefore enable them, but also are to some extent follow from them as well. It's obviously too early to make grand pronouncements on a Biden presidency that's only 100 days old, but where a lot of pundits see a kind of new progressive era, a radical presidency, I still to some extent see centrist pragmatism And I also think there's kind of an anti-political element to all of this, which was, I think, culturally the whole promise of the Joe Biden candidacy. And this goes back to what you were saying about your reaction to revisiting Richard Jewell. A big source of Biden's appeal was look everybody the Trump era has been absolutely exhausting and the one thing I can promise you is you're not going to have to think about this stuff you can go back to enjoying a Clint Eastwood movie uh, without having to situate it within the discourse or think what does it mean or or, you know if you like it explain how you like it because of your partisan preferences or whatever Um, instead
0: you should just think of it with the correct critical rigor with the correct (laughs) political consciousness which is mine and only mine
1: (laughs) (laughs) but just to conclude I think something that I think I see in all of these kind of grand pronouncements, you know, they're not just cautiously optimistic about the Biden presidency. They're actually saying, you know, it's already a triumph. You know, it's like the guy who actually talked about FDR for two years and was resoundingly mocked for it, Bernie Sanders, you know, was defeated. But don't worry, because it turns out, you know, you elected Bernie Sanders all along. Um, <laughs> I, I see an anti-political element in that. And while I completely agree, and I don't, I don't want to be misunderstood here, I completely agree that, you know, you should take victories, however small, however incremental, when they come But I also think it's important not to get complacent. And complacency is definitely uh, the sensation. You know, there's something very tranquilizing. Uh, about reading some of the stuff that's been written on the Biden presidency. It sort of says, uh, don't worry, folks, they've got this. The most conservative candidate who is viable won the Democratic primaries, but you're actually still going to get a new progressive era.
0: Yeah. And, you know, when Bernie Sanders was running, one of the implications of his campaign, indeed, one of its selling points, was the idea that you, you, the people, would be empowered. You would be a, a continuing part of this process and ultimately, it's probably one of the reasons, I mean, we we can talk about many factors that led to his defeat, but it j- just as it was one of the reasons that it was his appeal, it was one of the reasons he was defeated, too.
1: That's right. I mean, uh, I remember David Sirota making the point, I think, a few months after Bernie dropped out. That, you know, Bernie Sanders did have this appeal that was rooted, as you said, in, you know, this sense of democratic empowerment um, and that, you know, the the function of the presidency, uh, as he saw it, was partly to empower people so they could make change themselves, which might sound like a, you know, left wing cliche to some people, but it's still absolutely true. But you know, he didn't say that change was gonna be easy, right? He said it's gonna be really, really difficult. <laughs> and I, I do think one of the major sources for his defeat was that Biden didn't say that. Biden said, actually, change is gonna be easy. All you have to do is elect the right people. You get the good guys in power. And, you know, I'm an experienced guy who spent years in the Senate, so I know how to pass things. And it turns out that if we fall back on a kind of very conventional view of institutional liberalism, things can really change for the better in the Trump era and everything that produced it can be, you know, negated in some way. And I have to say, uh, reading through some of the commentary on the early Biden era, particularly the more effusive stuff, although there has been some very thoughtful writing as well, I definitely detect a whiff of kind of liberal commentators who are just delighted that they don't have to worry about, you know, they consider the populist right defeated, uh, you know, because it was, it was defeated in November, electorally at least, but, you know, they're also relieved that the populist left in the form of Bernie Sanders was electorally defeated. And so I feel like, you know, some people are keen to kind of reassert you know this much more conservative theory of change which is basically just that you elect democrats and look everything gets better look at all this stuff 1.9 trillion dollars what did you want folks
2: you know the audience that subscribed to time magazine the audience of, of the, the people that want to know what's happening in the world week by week the people that work during the day and can read it it's small right and it's concise and there's pictures in it i mean those kind of, you know those a certain class of people it's a class of people that take the magazine seriously I mean, sure, I can read it. You know, and I read it. I read it on the airplanes. But I don't take it seriously. If I want to find out anything, I'm not going to read Time Magazine. I'm not going to read Newsweek. I'm not going to read any of these magazines. I mean, because they just got too much to lose by printing the truth. You know that. What kinds of truths are they reading? On anything, even on a worldwide basis. They just go off the stands in a day if they printed really the truth. What is the truth? really the truth? Really the truth is just a plain picture. Okay. Of what? Example, of, of, you know, a plain picture of... Uh, of uh, uh let's say uh uh, uh uh you know a tramp vomiting man into the sewer you know and and and, uh, and next door to the picture uh you know mr rockefeller or you know mr c cw jones you know on the subway going to work uh you know any kind of picture just just make some sort of collage of pictures which they don't do they don't do there's no ideas in time magazine there's just these facts you know, which two are switched because even the article on your what you're doing, the way it's going to come out, don't you see, it can't be a good article, because the guy that's writing the article is sitting in a desk in New York. He's not he is not even going out of his office. He's just going to get all these 15 uh, you know reporters, and they're going to send him a quota. You know? no, that's not, that's not
0: he is not singing so much as sermonizing, colon. His tragedy, perhaps, is that the audience is preoccupied with song, paragraph, So the bearded boys and lank-haired girls, all eye shadow and undertaker makeup, applaud the song and miss the sermon. They are there, colon. They are with it, semicolon. But how remote they really are from sit-ins and strikes and scabs and life. (laughs) Yes, these are some words that I wrote in my notes while watching the 1967 D.A. Pennebaker classic... Don't Look Back, <laughs> starring Bob Dylan.
1: Well, we might as well get that scene out of the way right off the bat before <laughs> even say what the movie is, because uh, it will always uh, stand out in my head. I mean, it is, it is an immortal scene. You know, this scene of the reporter dictating one of the funniest bits of, like, hack journalism speak that I have ever heard, dictating that into a phone.
0: He's in the phone booth at the concert where Dylan <laughs> has just performed, or perhaps he's still performing. Perhaps he hasn't even performed yet. The journalist is just dictating this (laughs) to some guy at the newspaper.
1: This guy heard one half of Mr. Tambourine Man, and he's like, fuck, I got a file. I'm just going to go and... Like, he'd already written that before he went to the concert, let's be honest. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Because, you know, if if you watch this movie, if there's one thing that Dylan is not uh, really excited about doing, it's sermonizing. (laughs) And yet... (laughs) And yet the lank haired girls and the groovy boys or whatever are are, are still there just just to hear the music and miss miss the sermon. Anyway, we are talking about Don't Look Back, the definitive Bob Dylan documentary. And Luke and I have been talking about talking about this movie for a really long time because we both love this movie. And Bob Dylan is one of our great shared passions Probably you even more than me, I would say. I'm, I'm a great Bob Dylan fan, but you're somebody who, like, has really got into, you know, all the bootlegs. Um, oh, man. Every acre of the man's oeuvre, except the Christmas <laughs> album, which I'm the only one of the two of us who likes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I've I've never really listened to it properly, but I find your defense of it very spirited and very persuasive as well. I just I just can't connect it to my own experience trying to listen to bits of it.
0: Thing is, I do think you have to fundamentally like Christmas music to enjoy it. And you don't strike me as the kind of guy. I don't think you're the kind of guy who hears must be Santa and just lights <laughs> up instantly. <laughs> Whereas clearly Bob Dylan is,
1: and so am I. We should say that uh, this film, for those unfamiliar with it, I mean, it is in many ways the definitive portrait of Bob Dylan, as Will said, but it's not uh, by any means the most comprehensive survey of Dylan. I mean, I think that title belongs to Martin Scorsese's documentary, much more recent documentary, No Direction Home, which is itself really far from complete. It it pretty much documents Dylan's childhood up until just before the release of the 1967 album, uh, John Wesley Harding. So Dylan has obviously had an extensive career since then. And there really is, as of yet, no kind of uh, definitive portrait, although hopefully Scorsese will do a sequel. Oh, uh, well,
0: he, he did. Did you not see Rolling Thunder Review that came out a year or two ago?
1: Is that really a sequel to No Direction Home? I mean, it, it's great, but I don't see it as a sequel. It's more just like a portrait of, you know, a particular famous tour.
0: Well, um, <laughs> I guess it's
1: debatable, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think it's really a sequel. If you want a documentary about Dylan, you're curious about him or you like him already, and if, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend no direction home but don't look back uh, which is probably one of my favorite films of all time it's not really a concert film you know it's funny it's on youtube um, although i wouldn't recommend watching it there because even though there are only these little snippets of songs after a few seconds of each one the audio will just cut out i guess for copyright reasons there are lots of individual scenes that we might discuss and i and i'm sure we will but off the top, it might be useful to kind of hash out a little bit, you know, what is this movie? Because as I said, it's not quite a documentary. I mean, there's no kind of narrative, really. There aren't really title cards or anything like that. It's very kind of Spartan. It's very bare bones. But it's not a concert film either. There are just these little clips of uh, of songs, which are you know very powerful, particularly if you know the songs, or intermittently so. Some of them seem a little bit downbeat because Dylan doesn't seem that excited about singing them. But it's a film that is, uh, in some ways, very hard to situate. Um, And I think that might be a good place for us to begin.
0: Well, D.A. Pennebaker was part of the crew that helped create primary the 1960 documentary about the democratic primaries the battle between hubert humphrey and john f kennedy directed by robert drew that was the movie that had the incredible innovation to have a lightweight 16 millimeter handheld camera that you could just carry around so no longer did you have to plant your gigantic camera in the ice so that nanook could do a very rehearsed scene where he builds an igloo no Uh, you could finally have a fly-on-the-wall documentary don't look back which D.A. Pennebaker directed himself is in sort of the lineage of primary it's one of the early cinema verite films where the idea is that the filmmaker doesn't interfere with the reality that they depict they don't comment on it they let the audience be the judge As far as this particular film, it captured Dylan during his 1965 tour of England. He had been a star in the United States for several years, but had only recently made waves in the UK. And by this time, even though British audiences are really getting to know him, it's clear that his folk career, his career as the leader of the protest singers is already winding down early on in this film. We see him at one of his concerts performing the times they are a change in and it's an incredible scene. The man could not be more indifferent to this song <laughs> rushes through it with no feeling at all uh, as, as if there was a gun to his head
1: during, during one scene he's playing that like later in the movie, he's playing it. And uh, only the guitar mic is working. So his voice just has this cavernous quality and you can't make out any of the words, you know, and then it cuts to people behind the stage as they're trying to, you know, figure out what's going on and playing with various wires and fuse boxes and stuff. And it's like, I'm pretty sure Dylan knew that, you know, it wasn't working and, you know, the audience was only going to get to hear, you know, half the song, uh, you know, and then halfway through uh, his vocal mic comes through and everybody cheers. But I, I really think his main priority there was just, you know, getting through it. By the time this film was actually released in
0: 1967, Dylan had gone electric. He'd alienated large parts of his fan base that loved him as a protest singer and as a folk musician. So even when it came out, everything that we see in the film um, was colored by hindsight. Throughout this movie, we see journalists peppering him with questions about what his songs mean you know, this is a new kind of singer. This is a singer who, you know, he's not Perry Como. He's not Frank Sinatra. He's, this is music that is trying to make a social difference, but it's also very cryptic. Like if you can somehow decode this music, uh, you, you will get the secret and it will lead to the revolution. But as the journalists are asking him these questions, there's always the veiled implication that maybe he's just a charlatan. Maybe he doesn't really care. And that all of these young teeny bopper fans have put their faith in a false prophet and Dylan does little to diminish this skepticism. He's clearly over the protest phase of his career. He often responds jokingly to people like there's one early press conference where he's playing with this like comically oversized light bulb and somebody says what message do you want to impart? And He says a uh, uh, keep a good head on your shoulder and always
1: carry a light bulb. Great Dylan impression, by the way. <laughs>
2: How does it feel?
1: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, to be fair, a lot of the journalists uh, you see asking him stuff in this film really do not seem familiar with his work at all. They don't seem very curious about it. There are a few exceptions, but, you know, for the most part, they ask these ridiculous questions these kind of questions that are just very vague and sort of gotcha you know would you say you care about people do you think the young people who buy your records understand a single word of them do you care about what you say
0: early on there's a journalist who's like talking to people in the room, and he asks a woman what her name is. And she says, Oh, my name is Joan Baez. And he said, Oh, 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 you? Yes, yes. I was. I've been looking for you all day.
1: Yes, Joan Baez, uh, who is a tremendous influence on Dylan and is a great musician in her own right. Obviously, she appears frequently in the movie, we get uh, to hear her play at least one composition, I think of Dylan's, I think it's called Percy's Song. Although I think I think she might have been the only one who ever recorded it. I could be wrong about that.
0: But we see her mostly in the first half of the film. You know, she often shares a room in the first half with Dylan. She sometimes even shares the frame with him. But there never seems to be any great electricity between the two of them. And I don't know how much this is just me projecting onto the movie with the benefit of hindsight. (laughs) But I mean, she basically left his life around the time that protest music did. Um, And I think this movie, I mean, I can't imagine it was a mistake that D.A. Pennebaker edited it that way.
1: To return to the way that Dylan answers these questions, I mean, I think there are a number of things going on here. I mean, I I do think the kind of surface level reading of the way that he behaves in these interviews and in in some of his kind of more dickish moments with fans, you know, it's just the pure vanity of a famous person. And, you know, there definitely is an element of that, particularly in a few scenes. Um, But I think there's some other stuff going on as well. I think having spent a lot of time with with Dylan, a lot of time listening to him, a lot of time reading about him, a lot of time watching him, I think I've kind of arrived at a point where, you know, I see uh, his enigma, which often appears quite deliberate, particularly in any footage of him you see from the 1960s, or, you know, especially after, uh, you know, he decided to go electric. I see his enigma as kind of a, a shield, It's almost embarrassing to say this out loud, but I mean, it it can't be easy, if that's the right word, to become... This famous, this young, this quickly. I mean, to go from playing tiny shows at the gaslight in Greenwich Village to being called the voice of a generation in the span of a few months.
0: And yeah, not just famous, but you are the leader of a movement now. You're like Charlie Chaplin picking up that red flag in modern times, and all of a sudden there's a protest. Yeah, that's right.
1: I mean, and the other thing is, you know, it's also the case that Dylan isn't, I don't think even on his early records, he's mostly all that didactic. You know, he really doesn't want to think about his his own work with sort of abstract remove. He's not comfortable doing what the kind of fan culture around him, of which I myself have partaken quite a lot, you know, doing what we do, which is, think endlessly about individual lines and what they mean you know what does it mean that the original version of Tangled Up in Blue recorded on the what is now the the bootleg version of Blood on the Tracks has a different perspective in some verses or in all the verses has a third person perspective rather than a first person perspective something which I'm embarrassed to say I've spent an inordinate amount of time uh, thinking about
0: Um, uh, the the diplomat in Like a Rolling Stone is Andy Warhol (laughs) and the song is about Edie Sedgwick just write that down listen to the song and there's a there's
1: sense. a piece on dylan i once read in i think it's like the cambridge companion to bob dylan or something where it's it's this in-depth analysis of dylan's use of numbers in song titles you know rainy day women, women 12 and 35
0: well you know the shining is actually about how kubrick faked the moon landing <laughs> right, right,
1: right. <laughs> so dylan dylan doesn't want to do that he's never wanted to do that there are these these rare moments which are Um, Which are real gems where he's willing to kind of open up and be a little bit vulnerable. His own book, his own kind of uh, autobiography, Chronicles Volume 1, which came out about 20 years ago, I think we're we're still waiting on Volume 2. That is a very rare exception. He is somebody who uh, at times seemed, seemed like he was acting as a kind of conduit for something else. Like he had moments of of such intense creativity and, and productivity that a lot of the time, you know, his output appeared effortless. You know, there's that great story that Joan Baez tells in No Direction Home where she and he were checking into a hotel room and the clerk was, you know, incredibly rude to them or something. And he was uh, really frustrated by this. And he sat down at a typewriter for a few minutes and he wrote uh, the words... And then after the music to When the Ship Comes In, which is this song, unbelievably powerful song with all this biblical imagery and stuff. And, you know, clearly had something to do with, you know, this very pedestrian frustration he was feeling at the time.
0: I also channel my pain into my art, which is podcasting.
1: <laughs> but anyway, the, the point is that, you know, I think when you're that kind of artist... You don't spend a lot of time uh, thinking about what it is that you're doing.
0: But he probably also, like in the early days, kind of saw the folk scene and saw the protest scene as like, well, this is a way in, right? I mean, I'm not accusing Bob Dylan of being an opportunist or anything, because he was what, 19 years old? He was some insanely young age. But I mean, he must have been canny enough to kind of know that he was riding a certain kind of zeitgeist until he outgrew the zeitgeist. That said, he's not an opportunist. He's a great artist. And you can see that in particular in one of the iconic scenes of this film, Uh, the uh, Scottish pop sensation Donovan looms like a specter over this movie you know dylan arrives in in london and hears about donovan and immediately donovan becomes kind of symbolic of this you know this lightweight (laughs) and then maybe two-thirds of the way through the film we finally see donovan at a party in dylan's hotel room and donovan plays a song which is uh fine it's very sweet not 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 gonna set the world it's no it's And then they say, hey, hey, Bob, how about you play It's All Over Baby Blue? And he does. And I was watching a conversation on the Criterion Blu-ray between D.A. Pennebaker and the music critic Grail Marcus. And Marcus points out what makes the scene so powerful is you've got kind of a, a corny song about the value of kindness And then you've got a song that doesn't pander. You've got a song that doesn't necessarily tell people the things they already know or want to hear. It's aiming for something more complex than that. And that's what separates a true artist. Somebody who's willing to go places that the audience doesn't necessarily want to go and then make them want to go there.
1: I will say my impression of this scene has changed over time because I think it has earned a little bit of an erroneous reputation where, you know, it's a a scene where Bob Dylan is rude to Donovan. I think it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, It's Donovan himself who requests uh, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. And when Dylan says, hey, that's a good song, man, after Donovan finishes... I think it's a little bit ambiguous. I I don't actually... On this viewing, I did not think Dylan was trying to be condescending. I think they're both a little bit drunk. And I think he's trying to praise Donovan, perhaps unconvincingly. But I think that... uh, I think his intentions are good. And it... Insofar as Donovan gets owned in the scene, uh, he looks perfectly happy to be owned. He very lovingly requests It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. You know what I mean?
0: Well, not many people would survive a competition with Bob (laughs) Dylan, would they? I I know I wouldn't
1: if I were forced to play my grade 10 recital piano piece. There are a number of other cameos in this film. Albert Grossman, Dylan's longtime manager appears, so does Bob Newirth. Marion Faithful apparently appears, who I was not able to spot. Alan Ginsberg appears, Tom Wilson, who helped on uh, production I believe during Highway 61 Revisited, which Dylan I think started recording shortly after the conclusion of uh, of this movie. The other one, and this is a this is an aside, I couldn't find him, but apparently, according to Wikipedia, the English folk singer um, and guitar virtuoso John Renborn appears. This this will only be interesting to people who've heard of John Renborn, which I suspect is less than 0.1% of the audience. Um, but John Renborn is, is an absolutely fascinating artist. He's a guitarist I've spent a ton of time with. He's a guy who was big in the English folk scene. He was part of the group Pentangle in the early 1960s. I believe he hung out with Nick Drake as well at one point. And he kind of at various points fused uh, American guitar, blues, English folk music with influences that he drew from the music of the Middle Ages as well. It's a finger style guitarist who I've spent a lot of time thinking about and uh, and trying to copy mostly without success. Anyway, I was not able to find him in the movie, but apparently he's in here.
0: Well, you mentioned how hard it is sometimes to spot people in the movie. I do think we should say for people who haven't seen the film and are interested in it, it's not the easiest film to watch. It's a movie that's grown very dear to me over time, but it's especially if you don't know Bob Dylan, the first viewing can be rough sledding because the the cinematography is very grainy, dimly lit, black and white. The cinema verite style means that Baker is never telling you who is on frame. Like Joan Baez, for example, if you don't know who she is, the movie's not going to tell you who she is. You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. And it very rigorously doesn't handhold you and tell you what to think about what you're seeing. So the movie gives you a sense of the ecosystem surrounding Dylan. We see teenage female fans lingering outside his hotel room trying to get a glimpse of him. We see agents working deals. But the movie's not telling you necessarily what you were supposed to draw from this and how it's all supposed to fit together into into a single point. The movie is unpolished in a way that's very hard to imagine from a similar documentary today. I well, actually, it might be easier to imagine for like an Instagram influencer or you know, we watched that documentary about Arthur Chu. <laughs> That's very warts and
1: all, but... Yeah, which, which is almost as good as this. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know,
0: someone at Dylan's level, it's hard to imagine a documentary that's this kind of unpolished and at times, I don't want to say unflattering, but n- not necessarily following the script. Well,
1: un- unmediated. Yeah, that's the word.
0: And on that point, maybe we should talk about uh, some of the other scenes that this movie is best known for, which are Dylan's confrontations with journalists. (laughs) There are two in particular. The first one, he identifies himself as a science student. I think he's a journalist. I think he's interviewing him for something. Maybe I'm wrong. But this science student has this conversation with Dylan where he's trying to make the case to Dylan that, well, actually, you shouldn't judge me. Even though you're famous, I may have something to offer you and you shouldn't be dismissive towards me.
1: I mean, what, what is your whole attitude to life? And when you meet somebody, what is your attitude towards them? I don't what's, like them. You don't know. them? No. Them? <laughs> I mean, I've I come in
2: here. What's your attitude
1: towards me? No, i have not an attitude towards you at all. Why should I have an attitude towards you? I don't even know you. No, but I mean, it'd be an attitude if you wanted to know me or didn't want to know me. But why should I want to know you? I don't know. I'm asking <laughs> Well, I don't know. I
2: ask you another question. <laughs> You give me a reason why I should want to know you. Um, I might be worth knowing. Why? Huh? Why? Tell me why. What What is it going to mean for me to know you? Tell me. Give me, me one thing i want to gain. Well, you might learn something from my attitude to life. Well, what is your attitude sure to do Huh? I can't uh, explain that in two minutes. Well, who are you asking me <laughs> to explain in huh? two minutes? That's all you're getting in two minutes. You're asking me to explain something in two minutes, too. You're the artist. You're supposed to be able to explain it in two minutes. I am? Yeah.
0: Okay. wow. <laughs> what about you, John? <laughs> and Dylan is sort of playfully making this point of, like, well, well why should I care about you? <laughs> he says something like, give me a reason why I should want to know you. And he says, I might be <laughs> worth knowing. Dylan says, why? Tell me why.
1: What good is it going to be for me to know you? <laughs> yeah, Dylan comes off a bit like Socrates at his most annoying, and like the Platonic dialogues or whatever. Like he just keeps hitting uh, the hitting this guy with these uh, probing questions that, like in Inception like form, you know, go deeper, probe deeper than his previous question, and the guy is constantly flailing, trying to stay above water. <laughs> However, we interpret the scene, and I know, uh, I know, over time you've grown a lot more sympathetic to Dylan here. However, we interpret it, it is excruciating i mean dylan
0: is very mean and it's like it is an unworthy target (laughs) it is undeniably an unworthy target and his likability in the scene his charm is um, hampered by the fact that he's kind of surrounded by these jeering yes men who are kind of (laughs) chuckling at everything he says um on the other hand though first of all he's right everything he says is correct uh he's very funny And he is in the context of being one of the most famous people, certainly one of the most famous singers in the United States and constantly having to like justify himself constantly having to perform for journalists who aren't really all that interested in him and then are just going to write these jaundiced articles like that guardian writer that we quoted at the top of this discussion
1: i think this scene is made all the worse by the fact that it's followed by one where this local aristocrat who says that she's i guess the future lord mayor of manchester i couldn't mm-hmm. quite identify her although i looked at a list of uh of past lord mayors of manchester you know she's clearly a real fan uh, she means well she's telling him, you know you're a great influence on the children if you're back next year you must come come stay at the manor house with me or something like that i find that this scene is quite rough to watch given you know how he's tortured the poor square in the previous scene because yeah. he's basically pretty polite to this this local patrician who's mm-hmm. coming and saying nice stuff to him mm-hmm. well
0: let's talk about the other scene towards the end of the film he's being interviewed by a time magazine journalist whose name is horace freeland judson And the juxtaposition of these two guys couldn't be funnier because Dylan throughout this documentary is surrounded by people who they don't look like they're from 1965. They look like they're from 1955. That's how everyone dresses in this film, except Dylan, who looks eternal. Um, (laughs) And this guy, this time reporter, looks like he's from 1955. And we join this scene in media res where Dylan is just unleashing this torrent of I wouldn't call it verbal abuse, but uh, he's giving him kind of a humorous dressing down where he's essentially saying, I don't need to do this interview. You know, you're not going to be able to explain what I'm all about. I know what Time Magazine is about better than you do. And, uh, you know, I'm not quoting him directly, but this is basically what he's saying. He's saying, like, I wouldn't get the real news from Time Magazine because if Time Magazine printed the truth... Um, It would be out of business because it has too much to lose by printing the truth. And the guy asks, "Okay, well, what's the truth? And Dylan, he fumbles a little bit, but he says something like, well, the truth is um, a picture of a tramp vomiting in the gutter. God, whenever I say this, I almost start doing a Dylan voice. It's like a, a tramp vomiting in the gutter next to a picture of Rockefeller. And, you know, it doesn't sound very impressive when he says it, but I mean, I've grown more and more sympathetic to him in this scene over the years, just because, again, everything he says is right, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, Dylan should probably do what he does now, which is like not do interviews. Just give one interview to Rolling Stone every 10 years. He's I think he's happier that way.
1: It's worth underscoring, you know, the film, you know, like a lot of films like this, you know sort of these behind the scenes rockumentary style films uh, you know it makes the kind of touring lifestyle look pretty easy pretty hedonistic I guess you know it's it's you spend a little time on stage you make 10 grand a night or whatever and uh, you're surrounded by uh, you know fans and, and cool people in the hotel room while you get drunk and do drugs after the show it all looks pretty great
0: I don't know I, all these hotel rooms look kind of interchangeable to me I wouldn't necessarily want this lifestyle but your point is taken
1: well, yeah, I mean, it, it all looks pretty hedonistic, I guess is the point, but it's it's important to remember that by this point, you know, Dylan was playing something like 200 concerts a year. And while he was doing that, uh, he was pumping out records. I mean, just at an unbelievable rate and good records, like basically nothing phoned in or almost nothing generic or phoned in from the freewheeling Bob Dylan, which is technically his second album. It was the first one that people noticed right through to bring it all back home, which is the first one with electric guitar on it and which is, you know, a few after the freewheeling Bob Dylan. I mean, Free and Bob Dylan came out in 1963 and Bringing It All Back Home came out in 1965. And between that, you got the times era changing and another side of Bob Dylan. And then you got Bring It All Back Home, where he partly helped invent you know, this whole genre of folk rock that would be hugely influential elsewhere. All of these records have these incredible songs, these immortal songs on them, where even the kind of, you know, throwaway material or the stuff that's less well-remembered, the B-sides, is incredibly powerful. And some of the stuff that, some of the clips of, of these songs that you see in this film Uh, A reminder of that, you know, even the ones where it doesn't seem like he's as enthusiastic about playing them. For some reason, one of the more extended clips is of him singing uh, the song, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, which was a huge song for people that were into his, you know, uh, so-called topical or protest phase. But It's not one that has been, I think, particularly remembered. And it's, it's incredible. It is so, so powerful. If Dylan had stopped recording after bringing it all back home, uh, which came before, you know, Highway 61 revisited Blonde on Blonde and these, you know, Rolling Stones top 500 albums of all time kind of albums, he would still be remembered as, you know, one of the definitive American musicians of his quarter century, if not his, you know, his half century.
0: But fortunately, he lived and he gave us Down in the Groove. <laughs>
1: saved <laughs>
0: slow train coming is pretty good you ever heard that one
1: <laughs> we should be clear that uh well well i don't want to speak for well but i'm definitely not one of those people who's like dylan hasn't done a good album since blood oh, on the yeah. tracks there's tons of good stuff
0: i love late period dylan you know there's a part of me There's a part of me that kind of likes late dylan the best which you know i'm not sure i can defend that but like oftentimes modern times is my go-to You know, I just love the sound of it.
1: Yeah. So is love and theft. Anyway, uh, we're getting into the bad Dylan fandom territory. So let's be (laughs) careful here. I do think just to return to a point you made, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes ago about Dylan's kind of folk phase and authenticity. I mean, obviously, the whole question of artistic authenticity is very fraught, but I don't think for what it's worth that Dylan's you know, folk phase or whatever we want to call it, his protest phase, uh, was at all inauthentic. I think the thing about Bob Dylan is that whatever he's throwing himself into at a given time creatively, uh, that's him being authentic. But he goes through so many permutations that, you know, it's very difficult to capture authenticity because you rarely get to see this kind of creative process, you know, as it were in the wild. And the tension in Don't Look Back uh, is that it's capturing him doing this tour in England in 1965, where he himself has already moved on from a a lot of the songs he's he has to perform and he's getting set to kind of definitively break or at least kind of move on from uh you know this earlier period the ride away from uh, albert hall which i think is the scene the you know famous car ride that i think is captured uh right at the end of the movie or near the end of the movie just a month after that is when he started recording highway 61 revisited and released like a rolling stone That came out on July 20th, 1965, Um, and it was five days later that he was famously booed at the Newport Folk Festival when he came out to do this uh, electric set, and he played Maggie's Farm, uh, accompanied by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. So what we're seeing in Don't Look Back is this real tension where Dylan is kind of still living or still partly having to live uh, this former version of himself and is and is engaged in, I think, a pretty complicated negotiation with it and is sort of still unsure where it's going to end up. You know, Bring It All Back Home is a really interesting record. Uh, When I was about 16, it was actually my favorite Dylan record, but it's very much a transitional album. It's got these electric songs like Maggie's Farm. It's got Subterranean Homesick Blues, which is a sort of electrified beat poetry type song. But then it also has these very gentle songs which have very minimal electric accompaniment. And at least on the face of it, uh, even though they're not really protest songs or, or kind of topical songs in any, any meaningful sense. You know, basically with just a few changes, you know, if they're played acoustically without accompaniment, as a lot of them were when he was on tour, I mean, they basically sound like songs from from earlier albums, songs like Mr. Tambourine Man, Gates of Eden, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. Or you have a, a, a song like Bob Dylan's 115th Dream which has, you know, this this electric backing, but it's very much in keeping with the sort of, I don't know, surrealist nonsense songs that he did on earlier records. You see a clip of him playing the song Talkin' World War Three Blues, uh, which is off the freewheel in Bob Dylan in the movie, and it's very much in the same spirit of The 115th Dream, which if people don't know the song I'm talking about, it's the one where on the album recording he famously loses it at the beginning and uh, laughing and has to start again. But anyway, uh, bringing it all back home is, I think, you know, the ideal kind of soundtrack to this film because it shows Dylan in top form, but also engaged in this very complicated kind of negotiation with himself and and in a transitional phase, unsure of where it's going to end up. And I think the film's depiction of that is the real reason why uh, we're still talking about it so many years later.
2: William Zanzinger killed poor Hattie Carroll with a cane that hit threw on his diamond ring finger at a Baltimore Hotel Society gathering and the cops were called in and his weapon took from him as they rode him in custody down to the station and booked William Zanzinger for first-degree murder. And you who philosophize disgrace and criticize all fears, take the rag away from your face, now ain't the time for your tears.